Hello, and welcome to the Courtney Turner Podcast. I am here today with New Hampshire State Representative Mike Belcher. How are you doing today? I'm pretty good. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. Uh, so I guess we can start with that. What made you go into uh, into into being a representative? And uh, you're working on the Education Committee, correct? So what, what made you do that? Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> so... I had a I had a different road than I think most people to this point. I I grew up on the left. I grew up a leftist activist. Um, it took me uh, a long time to see the error of that. Uh, and once I did, I I, de- I I sort of broke down my own worldview right to the bare bones, and I I had to rebuild from there up. Um, so it was in that process of of sort of working on myself and understanding the things that I knew or didn't know that I thought I knew mm-hmm. that I, I also came to understand how not just I had been fooled, but how so much of society and culture had been fooled and stolen from us. Right. Um, and specifically education, um, because I had a, uh, uh, I had done quite a lot of research, probably thousands of hours um, into what brought us to this point and I, it's it's been a passion of mine among other things but mm-hmm. education has been a big thing for me and i think it, out of all of the critical critical points of failure that potentially exist right now for us as a as a as a nation um education is a top one because we are literally training a generation of revolutionaries who are going to take us down yeah uh, and we need, we need to fix that for sure so when you say you grew up as a leftist activist, what uh, what was the uh, turning point for you? That you know, I, I don't think there was a turning point. I think it was a slow. Um, I, I was one of those people that, despite having been a leftist leftist activist, I I had a reverence for natural rights in the Constitution, mm-hmm. and eventually, I realized that that those two things don't go together. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was that cognitive dissonance that brought me to really explore what the mismatch was between what I thought I believed versus what what is real. Right. So you, and you say it was kind of like a slow. You it, it didn't happen. Like it wasn't like a there wasn't a specific catalyst. Do you feel like? Right. There. I mean, there was a lot of specific catalysts, but they okay. weren't all at once. Right. Everything. Everything from when I was uh, injured badly working for the federal government and I had to deal with government health care. Um, that was eye opening. And, yeah. and there were so many other little things like that that helped me to understand um, you really only want the government to do things for people if you really hate that person. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you want it to be dealt with in a, in a more private capacity. Well, thank you. I I would definitely yeah. agree with that. You said you spent you spent hours researching uh, education that led you uh, to realize that we're training a generation of revolutionaries. What was some of the uh, like main people or uh, research that you uncovered that led you to that? Sure. So, so first of all, it was a reflection of myself. The fact that I grew up, I graduated high school in two thousand three. So I, I I went through the education system and where I'm at, where I was, I was in leftist indoctrination. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had I had Planned Parenthood come talk to me when I was in elementary school into my classroom. Wow. This was, you know, in the 90s. So this has been happening for a long time. Yeah. So 
my deep dive into this brought me kind of all over the place, um, everywhere from, um, you know, uh, Paulo Freire to, um, to looking at the Frankfurt school and how they, um, they were responsible for so much of where we're at right now. Um, uh, I, I loved <laughs> your podcast, uh, a while back, um, where James Lindsay and Steve Coughlin came together. Mm-hmm. Um, cause especially Steve Coughlin, his, um, his re-remembering series was, was huge for me mm-hmm. to be able to, to get into that and help remembering the remembered left. Yeah. That's re-remembering right. yeah. the misremembered left. Yeah. Yes. So that was huge for me to be able to um, help connect some of the dots for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, like I said, probably thousands of hours at this point of research into, into figuring out where we are and how to deal with it. Right. So when you say uh, like, how we got, what would you, yeah. What would you say about obviously thousands of hours? I understand. I've, I've dove into this oh, sure. myself, yeah. um, but if you were to give kind of a quick summary of, you know, how we got to where we are today um, and uh, you know, the left's role in that. And then mm-hmm. I, what I really do want to address is really where the right fails because just my personal belief, I, I started this podcast. So I, I think I have about, over 400 episodes up on my uh, Rumble now. And, uh, I, you know, it's, I think I've done, you know, it, it's been several hundred episodes of interviews. Um, but all this to say, when I first started, I, I started off saying that I felt like the right was behaving as controlled opposition for the left. I, I no longer yes. think that. I think they were created to be controlled opposition for the left. Um that seems like a minor distinction, but it's actually quite relevant and very important. Um, uh, yes, I think so. And so I personally feel like, uh, you know, while I do think it's a false paradigm and George Washington himself warned us against this two-party paradigm uh, because because of the dialectical uh, faith and uh, progress that we are seeing as a result of it. And he he knew this very well. I, you know, I suspect he learned a thing or two from watching the the French Revolution and from, uh, you know, he was a Mason and the, you know, the Illuminati infiltration in the Mason, the own split that he was wa- witnessing firsthand. Um, you know, I, people tend to think our founding fathers of the United States were very prescient people. And I think they had a, a pretty good understanding of human nature, but I, I don't really think they were so prescient. I think that they were battling a very similar, uh, things that we're up against today. And it, yeah, it, I think that's where I've come around to also is that, is that this is the eternal battle. The, yes. Um, but I think they really were, um, they were immersed in something that's very similar. We're in a very similar time frame. It's kind of like that next. If we do think of it as spiral, we're kind of like on another ring of it. You know, it's very, it's like another sure. iteration, but it's a slightly uh, different variation of it. And yeah. uh, so I think that that's what they were up against. And so all this to say that when I look at the right, while I know they were, they were, I, I believe they were, designed to be controlled opposition. I'm also much more uh, frustrated with them because they're presented <laughs> yeah. as something very different uh, than what they uh, what they really are. And I think that they they're much more deceptive. the The story that they that's crafted around what they that they tell us they will do is uh, very different than what. They actually do. And so I, I find that way worse than the left who, you know, they, they pretty much tell you that they're, you know, Marxist totalitarians and you, you know what yeah. their end game is. So 
Um, so it's a, a, in my opinion, it's actually a little bit more honest. So I get more frustrated with the right. So uh, all this to say that I would like to address your thoughts on the failures yeah. of the rights. And yeah, sure. Absolutely. And to give my quick version of how I think yeah. we kind of got to this point where we're at now yeah. is that we had, we had a Republic if we could keep it, we had, <laughs> right. we had a nation built on fundamentally Judeo-Christian metaphysics. Now, the the unique thing about those metaphysics are they are a totalizing system, but they're a totalizing system that posits that certain areas are off limits to government and off limits to, to politics. So what you could do is you could take the idea of classical liberalism and stack it on top of the traditional American metaphysic and acts as a, as a mechanism to um, to limit the realm of politics, because we already know that most things are agreed upon. And the things that are not agreed upon uh, are not of such a big consequence that we have to start a war over them, basically. Well, over time, what happened was those metaphysics have been replaced. Uh, there was a movement in the, uh, I believe it was the late 1800s, early 1900s, called the Logical Positivist Movement. Mm-hmm. That the idea was that you could you could actually reason your way to anything without ultimately without uh, a fundamental presupposition. Mm-hmm. That you could get to a point, um, for instance, ethics, without standing on a presupposition. And uh, part of that movement was about making metaphysics taboo. Mm-hmm. And they very successfully did make the concept of metaphysics taboo. And when they did that, everyone stopped talking about these very fundamentally important things to our lives. Mm-hmm. And when they did, it created the opening. For these other parasitic metaphysics to be smuggled in to our society under the name of science. Mm -hmm. When they weren't science, they were never science. They were scientism. Mm -hmm. Now you can you can have the debate, you know, epistemy versus you know whatever, which was the original true science. But the way we think of science as being like the scientific method, Mm -hmm. that's not what we're dealing with most of the time when we're talking about our modern science. so that's how we got to this point, I think. Yeah, I think that's definitely a huge part of it, which is uh, very interesting because it's really what I'm uh, I- I'm kind of observing t- today. I feel like we're very much seeing a resurgence of this, uh, you know, enlightenment versus counter enlightenment uh, type of battle. Sure. Um, I it's uh, I think it's far more concerning today than it was uh, at the time. And of course, I think every every generation in its time will think it's uh, the most pressing battle because it's the one that they're in the yeah. midst of. <laughs> but but I do. But there's other yeah. There's other layers get laid on top of it because even though this is, in my opinion, the eternal battle, mm-hmm. it still comes in sort of phases. I mean, you can call it whatever you want. There's these ideas like the fourth turning. Mm-hmm. I don't put a lot of stock in this as far as it's, I don't think it's a prophetic idea. I think it's mm-hmm. just a way of describing how long it takes parasitic met- metaphysics to take over a civilization and take it down. Mm-hmm. And these things come in cycles. I think they do come in cycles, but I really what I was alluding to is the reason I find it more concerning now is because the uh, the ideology is, and the philosophy is yes it's layered because we've had the previous uh you know presuppositions if you will uh sure. you know to build upon however we also have very different technology which yeah. complicates the 
the the potentiality for infiltration, the potentiality for psyops, the potentiality for uh, for movements to be co opted, and oftentimes you know people think about these uh, philosophical ideas, and it's you know really I think if we want to be romantic about it, we think of you know some some brilliant kind of oddball genius sitting in their room isolated with you know stacks of books, and you know. The reality is these people, what the old saying used to be publish or perish, but that's just a nice way of saying that they're funded, right? So yeah. if somebody's being funded, then there, there's, there's some strings on them and there is potentially some sort of motive behind whoever is funding the philosophy that is being put forth and the research yes. that's being put forth, right? We see this in the field of science where, as you mentioned, it uh, can, looks a little bit more like scientism today. And mm -hmm. uh, a lot of this has been uh, really uh, exploded as a result of peer review, which, you know, yes. Einstein rejected very strongly. And uh, of course, it's really just consensus review and consensus review mm -hmm. uh, gets pushed forth by those who fund it. Right. Yes. So I, I think that's just the elephant in the room that we can't ignore. And a lot of people really, I, I think romantic idealists tend to want to think that these are just ideas and, you know, these organic, authentic beings are just philosophizing and uh, throwing ideas back and forth. And I'm not saying that nobody ever uh, posits, you know, authentic uh, musings. I, that's not true. Obviously, people do. Sure. Uh, but we need to understand that there are, uh, there's, there's engines behind things and, you know, things are sometimes a little bit more orchestrated than we might see uh, on the outset. And all of that to say that that's why I think what we're seeing right now is really problematic because, and then I'll, I'll turn back to you. Sorry, I'm so long-winded, sure. but, no, no, no. um, but I just want to give you the context of what, what, what I'm thinking and why I'm asking the question I'm asking, because I, I fear that, you know, I think our, current framework of government is, you know, it's far from perfect. It's, uh, I, I think even the constitution is quite flawed. It was created by human beings. So inherently it's flawed because humans are flawed. Um, but I, I am seeing a movement and from both sides, uh, you know, quote unquote, I say both sides, really, it's a, a dialectical pole, uh, mm -hmm. and on both arms who look like they're in polar opposites are actually advocating for the same thing, which ultimately is, uh, you know, a, you know, sublation of the constitution, really. Uh, that's yeah. what it looks like to me. And I, again, I think it's far from perfect. I'm just not sure that the alternative is going to be better. So I think it's worth having an, at least a valid conversation, an honest conversation about it and uh, bringing it to the forefront, what is being discussed. And then that turns back to this question of, you know, this is how we got to where we are. You were talking about the logical positivist. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. They have, uh, you know, because there is no... Uh, like foundational presuppositions. And so it's ironic because uh, I think the idea that you're uh, doing away with the metaphysical foundation, uh, however, you you actually need quite a bit of metaphysics in order to, uh, to believe yeah. and buy into a system that has no foundation, that, that requires faith, just Right, just inherent on the face of it. Um, mm -hmm. But it's just that they're uh, overthrowing maybe perhaps the uh, biblical metaphysics. And uh, yes. that's, uh, I th uh, again, something that's, you know, in the forefront today. So then it, it comes to the right and what are they doing? And 
I don't know, address any of that, all of that. Yeah. Sure, yeah, yeah. And I, and I would love to talk about one thing you just mentioned because it, it hits exactly where my own personal belief is, mm-hmm. is that, um, so the way, the way that I view what we think and what we believe sort of epistemology, what we, what we believe as people mm-hmm. is that we have, um, we have a nested and a web-like belief system. And if you look at what, what Plato had done, his platonic, mm-hmm. his, you know, the platonic, the platonic method of questioning, right. he was very famous for because he just let people talk until they look stupid. Mm-hmm. Well, that's actually a bit of a trick because anybody can talk until they look stupid. Because right. if you ask a question in infinite regression, like you take any belief you hold and ask why you believe that, mm-hmm. and then you have an, an answer, and then you ask, well, why do you believe that? And why do you believe that? Eventually, you land on something that you can't explain rationally. Mm-hmm. You, you have to make an appeal to it just is or it is on, you know it's true on its face or self-evident mm-hmm. because it all stands on a foundation of faith and it doesn't matter who you are or what exactly you believe in the most fundamental things that you believe at the base of everything is not is not based on reason it's based on faith mm-hmm. and then you take those and you can reason from them two things Nice. In order to complete that worldview. And that's why I think that the platonic method of doing things is actually a bit of a scam because you can, if you take that far enough, you can do that to anybody where they can't actually answer rationally why they fundamentally believe something at the heart of everything. And it's also why that transfers so well to critical theory because ultimately you can, all you have to do is attack somebody at one level below where they are prepared to go. Um, and eventually, you'll get to the point where they can't rationally defend their beliefs on something. Mm-hmm. And um, this is where you get into the constant criticism. It can do nothing but negate. It cannot build anything. Right. Um, where my own belief would then say, well, since you can't actually, everything is a foundation of faith. Well, how do we how do we decide what what is what is true and what's not? Well, I think a lot of the way we do that is we recognize that there is an objective reality. We have to take that. As, as a fact, that we interact with it every single day. And the things we believe at a foundational level will be reflected back on us mm-hmm. in terms of our dealings with this real world, mm-hmm. in terms of pleasure, pain, starvation, privation, and other things that we experience. And that's also true not just on an individual, but a social level. Mm-hmm. So this is this sort of mimetic competition that happens with faith systems. Um, and to to expand that to the idea of enlightenment versus counter-enlightenment, it, it's my belief that the enlightenment and the things that should properly be characterized as enlightenment come from the acknowledgement that we are standing on a foundation of faith, that you can't reason your way to a moral system. You have to take that as a, as a faith-based item. Mm-hmm. And you have to work from that outward based on an objectivism, that we are living in a real world. That even if we can't understand perfectly because we're flawed, we can come to understand more perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a part of that, we have to uh, reject the radical subjectivism. That is what how I would primarily characterize the counter enlightenment, um, which is the foundationally the way that I look at it is um, this all goes back to in my in my own worldview the garden. Um, the very first pseudo reality was created when Eve well, let herself believe that maybe God didn't say that if I took a bite of this fruit. 
I would die. The very first time a person was confused in that manner. Um, and it's been happening ever since. We've allowed ourselves to believe that we have the ability to speak things into being as opposed to using our hands. And we, we don't. We can't speak anything into being. No matter what it is, we have to use our hands to bring it into being. Only God can do that in terms of using language. Logos. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I think one of the things you touched on that I think is really interesting, especially in the, the battle that I'm seeing currently, is that there's the enlightenment movement. I feel like really did kind of, as, as you pointed out, that it acknowledged that the uh, foundation of morals was uh, resting upon a uh, a faith derived uh, belief system, and yeah. that's that's redundant. But I don't know how else to say it, right? A, a worldview sure. that is uh, that is somewhat faith based, and uh, you know, in, in that case, it was a Judeo Christian. That, that's probably another uh, question I'd like to ask you because I'm hearing a lot of people who are arguing that that's a geopolitical. Uh, concept and that it doesn't exist. I, I I'm not a biblical scholar, but I, it is my understanding that the Old Testament is part of uh, the entire Bible. So it is the Old and New Testament, and it is uh, mm-hmm. one book. I understand that there's discrepancies between the two religions, Judaism and Christianity. Uh, mm-hmm. That they they don't align on everything, and that they're they're split. Obviously, uh, and, you know I get all these things. I, I like when some people who like to say, well, you know they. They, they point these things out as if you don't know them. This is, I think, most people who know anything about right. <laughs> about religion in general kind of understand this. But they, it is one. It, it's a story altogether, right? That at least as it's written. Um, so it's a little odd to me to think of it. I, I'm not arguing that it hasn't been used as a geopolitical uh, pawn. I, I think that there there's some validity to that, but that. But to say that it's entirely a geopolitical construct seems a little bit uh, faulty to me. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. but, I, I, but before you answer that, I'm so sorry. I'll just finish by saying no, that no. So the Enlightenment does. I like that you incorporated that. It does seem to. It, it is both, right? It, there is this uh, notion that these morals are derived from something that is faith based. However, there is also reason and logic. Uh, you know, that's where yes. the scientific method was derived, and that is part of scientific exploration, uh, which, you know, applies. Unfortunately, we don't see that t- this today because it's a more of a scientism that is applied today. Yeah. But this applied to much more than just the scope of what we think of specifically in the realm of science. It really was a method of inquiry and a meth- method of discovery that was very reason and logic based. But I, what I'm seeing in these uh, post Enlightenment movements is a uh, a polarity where it's a binary system. Only one or the other could exist. It's either this uh, romantic idealism that involves a lot of, as you talk, you mentioned the counter enlightenment, which is a very mystical uh, type of uh, worldview, yeah. or it's all like the logical positivists, which is uh, you know all reason and logical deduction, and there's no marriage yeah. of the two. And unfortunately, I think as human beings, just in terms of the scope of the world, as far as we can understand it, we kind of have to use both, uh, mm-hmm. you know, regardless of what the reality beyond our comprehension uh, or ability to fathom may be. It is our only way to even aim at the truth, I think. So I, I think that's absolutely correct. 
And I think um, just from my, and I'm, I'm no expert here, mm-hmm. but from my understanding, generally speaking, um, those in the field of psychology who are doing the real science part, not the scientism part, mm-hmm. generally consider to be two types of thought, right? There is the type of thought where you're reasoning your way from one thing to another thing. Mm-hmm. And you can you can sort of trace that through steps. But there's another kind of thought that happens where things just kind of come to you and you're not entirely sure where those things came from, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that also plays a role at the heart of this debate between um, the romanticism versus the sort of objectivity mm-hmm. side of things, because both of those two things do exist in the human experience, right? And there, there is this thing where, yes, reason... You can reason your way to things, but you also have a little bit of intuition or whatever it is you want to call it, where things kind of just come to you sometimes. Yeah. Um, and I have my own ideas about why that may be. It's not really important for this conversation. But I think the idea that you, so many people want to do it, like you said, is binary. They want to pick one or the other, but that's not the way things are. And in fact, you should always be using them collectively, both both of them together. They should be informing each other. And you should never be, um, you, you should never rely on your subjective experience without bringing in reason to it. Um, because you, you just wind up going off the rails that way. You wind up doing terrible things. And <laughs> seeing the entire history of the, you know, esoteric uh, metaphysics as they've existed. Yeah, absolutely. So what are your thoughts on that? So we we talked a little bit about how we got to where we got uh, in terms of the left and their movements. And what what are your thoughts about the right and how they failed and uh, what could possibly be done uh, better? (laughs) Is there any hope? (laughs) Yes, there is hope. Mm -hmm. Um, It's going to be hard to, to, to rebuild the right into a unit that is fit for service to actually be the proper opposition to the left Mm -hmm. while simultaneously um gatekeeping out the bad actors who would um who would purposely set it up for defeat Mm -hmm. is going to be a very difficult task i'm trying to undertake it Mm -hmm. and i've got plans on how to go about doing that but first let me tell you a story okay you're going to get an absolute kick out of this um so this is my first term in a new hampshire house uh was elected last november sworn in and began serving um in early beginning of january within days to maybe a couple weeks of entering the house the speaker of the house put on um and his his team brought in a bipartisanship training event Okay, so the idea was they wanted all the freshmen, especially, to attend this, um, to learn how to be. It was it was uh, advertised as learning how to be civil and whatnot. But what it actually was was when I showed up because I went because I wanted to know what they were up to. Um, they brought in a NGO called Braver Angels to run this training event for the left and the right Democrats and the Republicans. And it was run by they, by a psychologist and the methods that he employed in teaching us how to negotiate with each other were dialectical behavioral therapy, where he taught us to adopt the dialectical inversion of the left 
in order to moderate our positions and come together around a consensus. Wow. And I, I wasn't sure at first how much people understood what was going on behind this, the, right. as in the big the big players. But, but I, I later learned that all of the all of the uh, head people in my um, in the house, all all of leadership, are members of a secret society that meets in the house. Can you say which one? The Freemasons. They have a legislative lodge and they meet. It's not a secret. They, they publish it in the House Journal. Mm-hmm. They have their meetings in the clerk's office. So that these, that these, the secret society has brought in an NGO that is known, by the way, the guy who, uh, who ran this NGO. Um, if you look up his profile um, mm-hmm. under Braver, Braver Angels, it was started by a guy named David Blankenhorn. Um, he was a big guy behind negating the um, the uh, traditional marriage movement. He's definitely a political warfare actor, an active measures guy. Yeah, it sounds. And this this organization is funded by people, including Rockefellers. And it's called um, Brave Angels. Braver Angels. Braver Angels. Yeah. Interesting. Um, well, I don't know if you saw, like I posted. I, I've had this theory for a long time that Hegel. Uh, was a member of the Illuminati. I, I've since dug up some information there. There's definitely someone who also thinks that, but I, I can't confirm based on, you know, sure. one book, but he was definitely influenced by Gotha, who was definitely Illuminati. Yeah. He was also influenced by John Gottlieb Ficke, who was definitely a very high level Freemason, who was definitely in touch with Weishaupt and, uh, you know, communicated with Weishaupt and, uh, Hegel yeah. himself communicated with Bishop, and Bishop was very impressed with Hegel. Um, you know, my knowledge of the secret societies and all the details is mm-hmm. is pretty limited. I don't have a whole historical background of a lot of it, yeah. but I do like most of the things I do. I'll investigate, but my primary intent in investigating is to figure out ways to beat them. So sure. once I get enough to beat them, I pretty much kind of put that off to the side. You're, you're a tactical forward. kind of guy. I like yeah. it. Yeah, operational. Um, well, I only bring that up, yeah. though, because you're saying that they brought in this dialectical uh, methodology of uh, yeah. psychological operations, essentially, is what it sounds like. Um, yes. And, of course, this is based on, you know, Hegel's version of dialectical um, process. So uh, that yeah. that's the only reason I brought it in. And then you mentioned. Oh, no, it's very true. So it, it just it doesn't quite surprise me because there there does seem to be a historical context there that I think is relevant. That's that's yeah, it is. And it's one of those. I mean, I know enough to know that the Freemasons are sort of a, a secret society within a secret society that mm-hmm. most people probably have no idea what goes on in the sort of places where the real stuff happens. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I don't think there's any question that a legislative lodge that is bringing in political warfare operators to do dialectical methods. They know what's going on. Right. Yeah, that that's really fascinating. So what was the response of uh, the people like, yeah, when they come in with this, this plan or this training program, essentially? I'm the only person there who understood what was happening. Really? Yeah. That's now some, there were some people who may have, have saw issues with one thing or another, but they, 
nobody nobody understands the dialectic and how it's applied in terms of political warfare. Really? Nobody in politics, no. That's astounding. Um, have they never taken a philosophy class? I mean, you don't have probably, to understand not, active no. measures. Like, you don't have to understand a militaristic cognitive warfare to, I mean, no. just you understand the basic presuppositions of, uh, you know, our uh, philosophical history. That would be pretty apparent, I would think. But no. No. Interesting. So did you uh, relay any of your observation or to anyone? Oh, sure. Sure. I wrote up, I wrote up a piece on it that I published on my sub stack and I've referred to it a number of times. And, uh, it's just one of a million different, uh, fronts that I'm fighting on. Feels so when, like anyway. Yeah. So when you, uh, you wrote the piece, but then you, uh, shared it with your fellow representatives and what was the response, the feedback on that? So I have to, I have to sort of slow feed a lot of this stuff to Mm -hmm. my fellow reps because they're very, not every one of them, but most of them are very quick to the light side to go out or they think, okay, you're just conspiracy theorists. We're going to ignore you. Interesting. So it's got to be sort of slow drip to them and expose them as it's, um, you know, pertinent. In various, but I I think I'm I'm making progress. It's it's painfully slow, but that's very disheartening. Um, you're I I guess I'm guessing just because you uh, you had mentioned Steve Coughlin, you're familiar with Bruce Higgins, who worked with him on Unconstrained Analytics, correct? Okay, so are you familiar with the uh, are you familiar with the Higgins memo? I. I don't remember a ton of it off the top of my head. I okay. Do remember yeah. It, uh, if we were on StreamYard, I would pull it up for you. But uh, I highly recommend and for the audience, like, it, it, go look at it. I'll, I'll see if I can find it and put it in the show notes. It was a seven-page memo. Um, he got fired shortly after he was uh, working yeah. under Trump. And it was a seven-page memo where he outlines uh, the color revolution as he saw it. And uh, he talks yeah. about the, um, you know, the cultural Marxist infiltration and warn Trump, the Trump administration, of what was happening. And That's right. Yeah, yeah, it was great. It was a seven-page memo, outlines it very, he delineates it really clearly, succinctly for, for those who don't have the philosophical background. It's it's a great read. It's very uh, easy to comprehend. But uh, he was fired pretty shortly after. So yeah. uh, it just, when you said how few are kind of aware um, or readily accepting of the information you're bringing forward that it reminded me of that because it sounds like they really weren't. Well, that's a, it's a very kind of, I don't know. It's interesting. Uh, uh, Steve has brought some, you know, he's presented, uh, he did in the podcast and, you know, at various stages, he's presented some materials. And I, that's kind of the thing I keep asking. I'm like, who is your target audience? And uh, he, he has said repeatedly, you know, it is a, uh, military. So it, if that's mm-hmm. the audience that they're going to get it, but I, you know, it's unfortunate that the masses aren't. So I think it needs to really be brought to, uh, and I, I personally, when you, this goes, harkens back to the conversation about education, because I personally think this is by design. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. one of my missions, as I said in the, uh, I don't know if I said it in the one with, uh, uh, James Lindsay and Steve Coughlin, or if I said it in the one with the four of us with uh, Jay Dyer as well, but I, I was a philosophy major and I 
I mean, I studied philosophy as a kid, like, and I, it's one of my kind of missions and passions to uh, encourage people to understand that this is really material that is very accessible to most people. And that I think it's one of the biggest lies that we are sold for the purposes of controlling the masses. You know, it's this noble lie, right, that that Plato talked about, that it was reserved for the philosopher kings and uh, therefore they should withhold uh, the esoteric knowledge from the masses. And I I don't think that's true. I think they've presented it in a, and packaged it in a way that may uh, seem complex and complicated and in jargon that is only difficult to uh, decipher if you haven't been taught the language. And if we had an education system that, had, that was rooted in foundational uh, principles that taught them the to critically think yeah. and to build upon, then it wouldn't be, and they wouldn't be able to, uh, you know, execute these operations so effectively because we'd be able to see through it or at least question it. Yeah, a lot of my writing has, has at least some of my writing has focused on trying to make some of the more complicated aspects more accessible. Mm-hmm. And I think I've seen I've I've managed to do that with at least some of it. I've also spent a lot of time strategizing on how to defeat it. Mm-hmm including methods that don't require people to know anything about what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and fundamentally, I mean, I'm one of those people who is fairly rational about things. And that's mm-hmm. part of the reason that I was able to make that transition is because I couldn't stand the cognitive dissonance between what I thought I knew and, you know, those things that were interacting within me that didn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And I had to chase them down to the heart, but most people, unfortunately, I don't think are supremely rational. And I don't think it's a matter that they don't have the capacity for rationality. I think they just they just don't exercise it quite, mm-hmm. quite enough. Mm-hmm. And as a result, as I said earlier, you have these things, first principles that are not subject to rationality. There are things that you build everything on, and they exist within a nested hierarchy. So everything at the very base of that hierarchy is necessarily a, a foundational belief that is not really something that rests on reason, it rests on faith. But at any point in that hierarchy, or web for that matter, you can actually have items that haven't been subject to reason just because you haven't had time or you didn't want to. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think those things are fairly loosely um, embedded. And I think that by hitting people emotionally with a emotional appeal based in a traditional morality, unapologetically mm-hmm. it knocks them loose enough that those things can be switched out mm-hmm. and i think that's the primary method we need to be utilizing going forward it's not it's not trying to i mean it's it's great to explain all the details of political warfare that's that's all good and fine but ultimately the masses need to um they need to see it enacted through you know righteous indignation and other raw emotion coming from a traditionalist perspective about what is happening to us, what is being done. Mm-hmm. I mean, for God's sakes, we're, we're cutting the, the genitals off of children. Right. Yeah. I mean, if we can't muster up a bit of sentiment over that, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know what, <laughs> I don't know where to go. Right. No, for sure. That's uh that should be a unifying, uh, a factor for sure. Yeah. When uh, so, when was this that uh, they came in to present this uh, dialectical psychological operation? I think it, I, I think it was in January. Although I, 
Okay. It, it might have been before. I'd have to go back and look at the calendars. And forgive but, me, um, I, I have not read uh, your your uh, Substack on it. But did you did you outline a way to combat that in the Substack? Um, well, I, I'd actually have to go back and read read that particular one because that, okay. that was a long time ago. Sure. Um, but throughout my various Substacks, I have outlined a lot of different ways to combat the dialectic mm-hmm. and to um and i think the easiest way to think about it is if you're coming from a traditionalist perspective on something mm-hmm. and you have any confidence whatsoever in your position mm-hmm. the moment you start moderating to get along better with somebody you're actually doing a great disservice to everyone because you're mm-hmm. you're taking your truth and marrying it to a lie mm-hmm. and every time you you marry a truth to a lie you wind up the lie it mm-hmm. takes you further from the truth sure so Ultimately, people have to grow a spine, and they have to they have to get the stomach to. I'm a perfect example of this. Um, just my my kind of character type. I am not very. Um, I don't like I don't like conflict. I'm a conflict averse kind of person, mm-hmm. but I have learned to. Uh, uh, <laughs> I don't know if enjoy it is the right word, but I'll sure do do it. Right. So when you say take a traditionalist approach. Um, I'm wondering there there are people who are really kind of moving in this direction, but I, I'm seeing that there's actually people who are moving uh, so far in this direction that it's a you know almost like a well, we'll almost buying for either a localized theocracy, uh, which if it were super localized, I I, I should say federal theocracy yeah. or or global theocracy, yeah. um, and uh, I'm not so sure how I feel about that either because. You know, I yeah, no. tyranny is still tyranny, whether it's coming from a religious uh, entity or or religious precept or a. Right. Uh, so, know. my view on this, and it's probably it may be a unique view on this, is mm-hmm. that um, when I say traditionalist, I mean yeah. more of more of the American tradition. Now, the American tradition was born out of the Enlightenment and the Reformation, right. and one of the things that's really unique about the sort of Reformation doctrine mm-hmm. is that, especially within Calvinism, this concept that a person cannot themselves decide to convert to Christianity. They have to be brought to that. Their heart has to be mm-hmm. softened by God. Mm-hmm. Christ says, nobody nobody but comes through might accept you know, it was given to me by the Father. So mm-hmm. when you take that and you say that, well, you can't make somebody be a Christian, right. you actually, it's only God that can do that. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, if you actually design your civic um, institutions around that, you realize that you can't have a government that forces people to be Christian. It's just not possible. Right. So it takes theocracy off the table mm-hmm. right away. It seems kind of antithetical to Christianity because inherent in Christianity, my understanding is that God endowed us with free will. And uh, therefore, right. you do not force others to your will. <laughs> so Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now. Now, there is a little bit of a caveat to that because mm-hmm. there are still foundational articles within the Judeo-Christian worldview, such as, I mean, you shall not murder, right? Sure. Now, we'd, li- we'd love to believe that's a human universal, but it's definitely not a human no, universal. It's not. There have been a great many societies, and there still are on this planet, where murder is condoned in a lot of circumstances. Sure. So we have, to, we have to walk that line where we say, no, we're not a theocracy. We're, I, I like the concept of three spheres uh, governance, the fact that mm-hmm. you have the, the civil sphere, the church sphere, and the family sphere. 
they all have their own responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to also say that, well, you don't have total free exercise of religion because what if your other religion says that it's okay to murder? You can't do that. So we have to find that line where, where yeah, we're going to enforce the basic tenets of Christian metaphysics, but that does not include forced conversion and other, other sort of extreme measures like that. No. This is a really, really astute, uh, nuanced perspective. And I, I think it's really important to address because, yeah. um, you know, there's a, there are people who are arguing, and I think it is a bit of a slippery slope, you know, that there is freedom of religion. So even if I don't like it, therefore, they must be uh, free to exercise right. their religion. Uh, and, you know, some cases have been brought to my attention. Now, locally, I do think there there is it's the local local jurisdiction should be allowed where someone can say, no, this is not allowed in, you know, this county or uh, potentially even states, right? I, I think the states' rights, Tenth Amendment, should be honored. Um, federally, I'm not sure that I think that there is any place for, uh, you know, that kind of purview. However, it's a I, I think it's a very valid uh, discussion to be had because when sure. they made, you know, this. Uh, of course, the First Amendment is freedom of religion. A lot of people have conflated it as a freedom from religion, and uh, you know the. Yeah. Uh, Church, uh, the separation of church and state is brought uh, to the conversation quite often, and that yep. is actually not in the Constitution. That, no, that it's not. yeah, <laughs> a letter from Jefferson that was sort of poorly written. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I really think that it's a when they talk about freedom of religion, oftentimes what you see is, uh, like for instance, in the school, you know, the education, uh, there's freedom of religion, there's freedom from religion is typically what they try to, uh, implement. Right. And except it's not ever, really exactly. It's not because <laughs> they, they teach Marxism. I, well, they don't teach, they, they typically don't teach the philosophy. Actually they teach, but they, that's what yeah. they indoctrinate with. And that is literally mm-hmm. satanic because, Anybody who has studied Marx knows he wrote odes to Satan. I mean, he was literally yeah. an avowed, self-avowed Satanist. Like this yeah. is not what, what I like to say is that the uh, the Church of Satan is a bunch of LARPers, but the real Church of Satan is communism. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I mean, Weishaupt was a uh, you know definitely created the model of, and it was based upon the Jesuits, right? Uh, Weishaupt himself was a student. Uh, he was a professor at Ingolstadt. Uh, and he he was very openly discussed how he modeled uh, the Illuminati after you know the order of the perfectibilis, uh, and he he modeled it after the the Jesuits. That's why it has the hierarchical structure. It's also where he got this notion that uh, you know the the secrecy was so integral because it uh, it helped people to be invested and to uh, feel like they were achieving power and clout, which made you know, further abetted the uh, agenda of uh, having people invested. So um, that, and that was about, you know, there was that he could derive that from the Jesuit model. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I just, I, I'm just saying that I, I see that this is, it's a very slippery slope and it's very deceptive because they, yeah. you know, they, they argue about secularism, but it's really not secular in many cases. And no. if, the, if, if people knew that, then I think there would be policy and a, uh, legislation that could be further enforced right because i actually submitted legislation this last session 
Okay. Uh, that would have that would have uh, legally recognized Marxism in all its species to uh, to be a religious doctrine, which would be fundamentally violative of the First Amendment establishment clause everywhere that has been instituted in government. Right. Uh, I, th- I think it got three votes on committee, and then of course died in the House, along with almost all my bills. <laughs> Wow. But it's the first it's first go around. It'll Yeah, it'll no, I think that would be a great thing to really uh, at least yeah. bring to awareness, bring it into the forefront. I, I think it should be implemented. That's that's my personal yeah. opinion. But absolutely. Because it is a religion. Absolutely. We have a state church right now. We're we're living under a theocracy of, of esoteric metaphysics, is what we are under. Whether you want to call it Marxian or communism or Neoplatonic, whatever you want to call it. Right. That's what we're under as far as the sort of oligarchs are, are concerned. Yeah. And then uh, that, that was the other point I was going to make, because when you brought up uh, a murder, right? And uh, we yeah. now have it out in the open, right? Didn't Cosmopolitan just do a whole article about abortion being an actual, you know, satanic ritual? Um, I did see that. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, many of us have been talking about this for a long time, but now they just, you know, put it right out in the open. It was like a how to uh, do mm-hmm. this uh, ritualistic yeah. sacrifice. Uh, so it, it's pretty much it's out there. And we know that that, of course, that they're they're openly saying it's murder, but it's part of. And this was actually when uh, Roe v. Wade was overturned, that that's what they were using as their uh, justification, the Satanic Temple. Uh, we're saying, yeah. that, you know, it's part of their religion. Oh, yeah. You know, well, like lo- lawyers like to talk out of both sides of their mouth. And they were acting like lawyers on this one, trying to have it both ways, saying that this is their protected religious practice, right. while simultaneously not wanting to admit that they have a religion that would bar their um, establishment as a state church and government through right. forcing any of this dogma from woke DEI stuff, because that's all that's all religious. It's all 100% religious dogma. Right. Um, but then the other side is that you were talking about the uh, moral uh, underpinnings. But that's not the same thing as, uh, you know, advocating any kind of theocratic uh, type of uh, government or theocratic type of uh, system. That's that's saying that's what the founders did. They said that these are the moral underpinnings that are woven right. into the fabric of these documents. Well, that's where that's how I would describe classical liberalism. It's a little, it's a little bit of a, um, it, it, a little bit of a nice fiction. Okay. Because I think, I think there is a little bit of a gray area where some people like to say we every, you know, you're always going to live under a theocracy, and I think they have a little bit of a point mm-hmm. because if our foundational beliefs that make up our our ethics and our presuppositions are all at that level of faith then everything that we look to enforce from a perspective of morality is going to be faith-based, which is definitionally theocracy. But that gets into real difficult trouble when you start talking about things like, well, what does that mean as far as how do we have freedom under that context? Right. Well, that takes me back to this idea of, well, under under the, the system that we, we were instituted under in America, the, the, the sort of three the three spheres uh, theology of of reform tradition, it affirmatively set aside certain areas that were not for the civic um, government to be dealing with, and that was that was those were hands off mm-hmm. because it was recognized as a part. 
that was a part of their religious doctrine that said these areas are off limits to any sort of religious enforcement. Mm-hmm. And I, my view is unless you actually have that built in mm-hmm. to a religious doctrine, your sort of underpinnings, whether you want to call it religious or metaphysics, either way, it doesn't really, really matter. But unless you have that affirmatively built in from the beginning, if you put if you try to put classical liberalism on top of that, it's going to fail. Because classical liberalism doesn't, as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't actually contain its own value judgments. It only, it it acts as a a mechanism to prevent people from going to war over minor issues Mm -hmm. and to limit the sphere of the political, which works in underlying systems that are amenable to that. Right. So are, are you arguing that classical liberalism doesn't work without a theocratic It's not so much that I'm arguing. First of all, I would argue that we all have a values, faith-based system at the foundation of our beliefs as people. Mm -hmm. And anytime we set up a government that, and we want that government to do good things like prevent it from murdering, for instance, we are necessarily doing so from the foundation of faith. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a lot of different faiths that could occupy that foundation. Right. And only those faiths systems that have built into it as part of the metaphysics Mm -hmm. that the civil government is not going to be responsible for everything it's not totalitarian it's going Mm -hmm. to actually set certain areas as off limits Mm -hmm. only on top of those systems can classical liberalism actually be effective and because we are now under a totalizing system that is not class that is not amenable to classical liberalism we are under the esoteric metaphysics of marxism Mm-hmm. Classical liberalism has necessarily failed because when you're met with a totalizing system that says we're going to ignore that, everything's on the table in terms of politics, and we're going to shove it down your throats, well, classical liberalism um, becomes a defeat mechanism for those who cling to it. We're actually going to have to step outside of that model into what I would like to view as the sort of Lockean uh, state of war. Locke described a state of war as um, Anytime a person maneuvers themselves to negate you and mm. your rights, they have entered into a state of war with you. And if we recognize that, we can apply something akin to just war doctrine or just war theory mm-hmm. to politics instead of the classical liberal model. And that should be a temporary departure until we can reinstitute the classical metaphysics that are amenable to classical liberals. So you you feel like there needs to be a temporary departure from classical liberalism in order to reinstate classical liberalism because inherent in classical liberalism is a classical metaphysical foundation. I, I think that it's classical liberalism has already been toppled in the United States mm-hmm. because the metaphysics that we're under are just they're not compatible with it. Mm-hmm. So the only way to re install and and bring back that classical liberalism is to reinstitute those classical metaphysics to which it is amenable. And the only way to do that is to view what has been done to us by the other side as maneuvering to negate us and our rights and our constitution as an act of political warfare against us that justifies an act of political warfare in response, um, which would be the Lockean model. 
But what would uh, the act of uh, political warfare in response look like, in your opinion? So I, I've written quite a bit on it, okay. and it it calls for a um, in in some in some ways it calls for a tit for tat response, mm-hmm. um, sort of a game theoretical optimal outcome tit for tat. Right. Um, in other ways, it, it calls now when I, when I say that classical liberalism has become a defeat mechanism for those who cling to it. What I mean is that those who would subject ourselves to the traditional politics that um, they, they, they actually prevent us from seeking the sort of more extreme politics mm-hmm. that are necessary to, to defeat the left and what they're doing. Um, so, for instance, like classical liberalism loves to use the, the phrase, um, we need to teach children how to think, not what to think. Mm-hmm. And that's a very nice thing to say. Mm-hmm. And because classical liberalism is a mechanism that is primarily designed to prevent people from going to war over more minor issues, that worked for all for a long time. But actually, at the, at the foundation of it, there's a bit of a lie there. Because teaching, there isn't actually a big difference between teaching children how to think and what to think. Because your mode of thinking is just sort of a meta how to think or what to think rather. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people that I have to deal with on a regular basis when it comes to trying to reform education on my own side cling to these ideas that, no, we, we cannot have anything like indoctrination and we cannot have um, in any of that sort of thing going on. We have to stand on this value neutral proposition. Mm-hmm. But we're not, first of all, education is never value neutral. Mm-hmm. And to keep pretending that it is and, and subjecting ourselves to that paradigm is preventing us from being able to mount a real challenge to the left. The fact is, they are actively indoctrinating into Marxian metaphysics. We need to actually actively indoctrinate into classical metaphysics. That is what we should be doing as a part of our education. Jefferson knew that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that doesn't mean that we go to extremes where we're trying to, again, this is not a theocracy kind of thing, mm-hmm. but it is a necessary departure from the sort of peacemaking mechanism of classical liberalism to, to recognize that some of the, some of the realities that were obscured by the classical liberal model, we have to, we have to negotiate them in more of a political warfare dynamic. So when you say that we would have to give them uh, the uh, a classical metaphysical indoctrination, uh, mm-hmm. but you said, what what would that look like? That would look like well, let's talk about the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about let's talk about how the Constitution is not in fact a progressive living document. Mm-hmm. It's actually a document that is to be interpreted along uh, somewhere between textualist and and originalist lines. Mm-hmm. And let's let's tie it in with the um, let's tie that in with the Declaration of Independence. Mm-hmm. And what does that say? It says it says that these guys, these rights are not granted by government; they come from the Creator. Mm-hmm. Now we're not going to we're not going to say you have to believe in who that Creator is or anything else. But these are these are not from government. Right. Government cannot create them, and it cannot take them. Right. And that is the sort of indoctrination into a classical metaphysic that mm-hmm. we need to be pursuing. Yeah, 
I, I would agree with that very much so. I mean, that that's kind of the the premise of classical education. Um, yeah. yeah. I, and I think that that should be, I mean, interestingly enough, many of the, uh, our founding fathers were not formally educated, um, but they all had, uh, or I, I think almost all of them had biblical uh, training, whether or not they believed in whether or not they called themselves Christian or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, or not, you know, they at least had read the Bible and yes. Yeah, I think that's very important. I, I think that children should mm-hmm. um, read the Bible. Now, they shouldn't. I don't believe they should be taught it from a perspective of this is this is the, the only truth, and you have to believe. I, I this. agree. That, that I was think, why I brought it up because a lot of them didn't right. actually subscribe to that worldview, but they had the foundational, so they could then choose from there. And that is right. when you say teaching them uh, how to think versus what to think. That is giving them foundational tools. Uh, to say, okay, I have this knowledge, and then now I have to assess and use discernment um, and uh, yes. cross-reference data points and determine, you know, what resonates. And of course, there's an element of faith involved in that as well. Um, but it's not a, a blind faith in some externalized authority where you've done none, no thinking of your own. Right. I would. I would agree. And, and those are the kinds of things that we need to because, I mean. We've lost so much in our culture, but for a long time, even if people weren't strictly Christian, biblical stories and the understanding of the of the meaning and the values and the other things that are embedded with them as narrative mm-hmm. help to hold our society together. Mm-hmm. And we've, we've become such fragmented, um, so fragmented as a society at this point that, I mean, we're ripe for the picking. Yeah, oh, very, very much so. Um, what are some, uh, so I, I know you brought up this example of this, uh, psychological dialectical warfare me- methodology, mm-hmm. uh, that they were training. What, what are, do you see some examples of that being played out now? Um, so it's, it's more of an ever present phenomenon. Sure. Um, I get into a lot, <laughs> I get into a lot of trouble actually, mm-hmm. um, because like I said, I, Ultimately, my goal, the war, as it yeah. were, is to defeat the left mm-hmm. and, and the esoteric metaphysics to come along with that. Right. But that's not the battle. Right. Um, the battle that we're in right now is to reform the right to be capable of winning that war. And mm-hmm. reforming the right is going to be a little bit of a painful process. And it has yeah. required a lot of confrontation and a lot of um, pointed discussions and a lot of um, political warfare dynamics mm-hmm. against people on the right who are doing the wrong things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's my belief that we actually need to subject the right to some of the same kind of ideological intensification that has occurred on the left through perpetual revolution, mm-hmm. except we need to ground it at all times in objectivism not subjectivism. Mm-hmm. And what that means is pursuing pursuing things like cancel culture. Mm-hmm. We actually have to cancel rhinos. Yeah. They need to be uh, anathema. They need but to be... Are, don't they comprise of the majority? Of... So kind of yes and yes and no. Okay. So there's a, there's a broad spectrum of people. Um, and 
those those who I think are actually in the know operators for the controlled opposition are very few. Mm-hmm. I don't think that accounts for most of them. Mm-hmm. But it's my belief that you don't have to you don't have to defeat them all. Mm-hmm. All you have to do is make examples of few of them. And those who can be moved will be moved. Mm-hmm. And those who cannot will be removed. Mm-hmm. Um, so this off-heapender culture concept needs to be applied on mm-hmm. the right to, to create a, uh, a party capable of winning. Right. So when you say uh, there are very few who are uh, explicit operatives, per se, um, would you say that there's still uh, several who are either uh, unwittingly abetting the same agenda or that many. there are many who are still uh, compromised under various situational pressures or? Oh, know. sure. Yeah. So the the number one from what I can tell, the number one way that people are made to give in to things they shouldn't give in on is social pressure. Mm-hmm. It is being made to feel um, like you're morally wrong somehow. And you and think they, that's that's uh, more prevalent than uh, perhaps uh, uh, fiscal incentives or blackmail? Yeah, in terms of the number of people, yeah. Now, now maybe that's a little unique for us here because we have one of the largest legislative bodies in all of the Western world. There's 435 legislators in the small state of New Hampshire. Right. Yeah. Um, so it would it would actually be quite difficult to throw around enough money to to bribe 435 legislators. I think there is some of that happening mm-hmm. um, in certain angles. Um, I don't have direct proof for uh, for much. Um, but I don't think it's a I don't think it's a primary thing. Right. I think the primary thing is by far social um, stigmatization. Well, the thing that's fascinating about that is that uh, it then it's actually really more a result of this type of long, uh, essentially the long march through the institutions. It's really this uh, slow yes. walk of indoctrination that. They've been completely brainwashed, and it's really less, uh, you know, less uh, acute kind of active measures at play. I think so. So mm-hmm. there's mo- most people have, to some degree, progressive instincts. Uh-huh. Um, now, some are really minimal, some are major, like my committee chairman, unfortunately. But everybody has some degree of progressive instincts, if only because it's the water that we swim in. Right. It's, it's just, we, we take this up through osmosis. Um, you actually have to stay purposely and consciously grounded in the sort of the real traditional objectivist stuff in order to not get taken over um, by some of the more um, difficult things that come up. Now, so let me be clear, though, there are constantly active measures. Yeah, that's what it appears. And I'm not on. So the, it looks that way to me. <laughs> So those active measures operators within mm-hmm. my own party, I think they're relatively few. But Doesn't but because so many people are no, I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> but because so many people are compromised at the level of their fundamental values, they don't really they don't know them as well as they ought to, just because of the milieu that we all grew up in, um, and the education system, mm-hmm. that they're far more susceptible to active measures. 
Do you think oh. that, uh, do you, do you think that there is, what, what do you think? I, I'm curious both in short term, cause we're about to enter the election year. Right. So, mm-hmm. uh, and I think a lot of people are questioning the validity of elections at all. Uh, I, I would argue, I mean, I always point to Carol Quigley's tragedy and hope. And, you know, he said the, the CFR has pretty much selected our, uh, officials for well over a century. And that was, you know, decades ago that he wrote that uh, as an insider, you know, who is an archivist for the CFR. Um, so I, I think, but now I think especially people, I, I'm seeing it really in my generation where people have no interest in voting. They have no faith in the uh, system at all. So uh, all that yeah. to say, I, I'm curious your thoughts on, you know, kind of what's going, what we're going to see in the uh, upcoming uh you know, presidential election and really what, what does that bode for the future of, uh, uh, politics and for the, the landscape of America? Yeah, that's that honestly, that's really difficult to try to put a, put a pin in because mm-hmm. there's so many moving parts mm-hmm. and there's so many things you can only kind of take a best guess at sure. because you don't have the full picture. Now, I can say I don't love the fact that even though in New Hampshire we have handwritten ballots that we mm-hmm. that we write on, we then put those ballots into a machine that counts. Yeah, right. I don't love that. I don't love that at all. No. <laughs> um, if, now, I don't know for sure that these machines have been used for fraud in the past. Mm-hmm. I, I can't say that I know that for sure. Right. But I know that they can be. Right. <laughs> and that's enough reason that we shouldn't be doing it. Exactly. And there's an awful lot of resistance to stopping doing it. Right. I do know that. Um, so, and this is not to say that there wouldn't be fraud without the machines. And in fact, sure. we know for sure there was ample fraud prior to the machine. Uh, yeah. It just makes it much more. Uh, it makes it easier to commit fraud, and it also makes it easier uh, to increase the scale of the fraud. Sure, I, I would agree. Yeah. So, so I don't know if that's a reflection of. Um, there's actually some cabal behind the scenes pulling strings or if this is just people who are um, being lazy and they don't want to change things. Right. Cause that, that could be the case too. So I don't know the degree to which voting is going to be impacted. I would say that um, I would like to think that if there was total, total fraud happening all the time, there's no way I would have been elected. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I just wasn't well known enough yet. We'll see. See, maybe we'll see what happens next time. But um, what's going to happen in 2024 is some of the things that I do think are going to happen. We have a so the political warfare mechanism on the left. The way I like to think of it is like multiple revolvers, Mm -hmm. all pulling triggers at the same time. Right. And you don't know which cylinders are loaded. Right. And each cylinder represents a different mass line narrative, line of action. Mm -hmm. And Every now and then, one of them sparks off, and there's actually a bullet. So I think they're going to ramp up the speed which they're pulling these um, triggers, okay. and I think there's going to be um, there's going to be ignition probably on on multiple mass line narratives that that are going to bring us to um, something akin to the summer of 2020, probably um, okay. probably significantly worse yeah. than what we saw in 2020. I'm worried about um, that too. I think that's a real issue we're going to deal with. Now, in New Hampshire, does we, we never seem to get it as bad as a lot of places do, but we've had our own issues. Mm-hmm. Um, we're 
I would expect that. Um, so we have the election coming up. We've got, I would expect Trump appears to be likely to win the primary mm-hmm. for the Republican Party. It's not 100% assured, but it is pretty likely. And it seems to me that that the uh, the powers that be, for whatever reason, want him to, because mm-hmm. otherwise they otherwise they wouldn't have you know being indicting him in mm-hmm. like everywhere on the planet, because mm-hmm. every time they do that, his numbers go up. At least that's what the polls are saying. Right. And I, the people I talk to, confirm that. In fact, in my heart of hearts, it makes me want to support him a little bit every time he gets indicted. Yeah. Frankly, <laughs> but but it makes me seriously wonder why. Do they want him in that right. position? And it, ma- and it makes me wonder, well, is this a massive demoralization campaign so that they can either cheat and have him not get elected or maybe even more likely toss him in jail or even kill him? Mm-hmm. Um, or utilize him uh, to push forth, you know, some of their goals. Which That's uh, another possibility. Because I mean, he, he wasn't exactly, you know grade a political warfare operator material his first go around uh he may well be cowed enough by the sort of powers that be at this point that well i mean i i i would argue he did push forth some of their goals last time so you know and i you know one could uh argue it was ignorance incompetence uh or you know, that he, uh, they had some kind of lever on him. And I, I don't claim to have the answer. Um, and, yeah. you know, of course, you know, he's human. No, no one's going to be perfect if we're, no, we, sure. Even if we have the power to elect a, a politician, this is, uh, you know, presupposing that that actually works and that it, it is yeah. a, a transparent, honest, and fair system. Uh, then even if we do, I mean, we're, we're never going to get perfection. We're getting a human, not, you know, we're not electing a messiah um so yeah so i mean that that's always going to be a play but i i do wonder because there's certainly right. you know the, the when i was saying how i initially thought that they have become controlled opposition for the left what i now see is because the one of the reasons i came to the conclusion that, that i did that they were designed that way is because when i look throughout history at least american history uh typically the you know, the, the powers that shouldn't be, I call them the parasite class, but they seem to align ideologically with the left. However, when you actually look at what happens when the right is in power, a lot of their goals actually get advanced. And yes, I they think, do. Right? And I think this is dialectical because they are, they, they, they placate through their words, you know, you know, parroting the things that the the patriots and the the political right want to hear, and they're pacified by it, and then they quietly, or rather, not so quietly, always, but uh, you know, they actually push forth some things that make a monumental uh, step forward towards their ultimate goals. You're right. A lot of the time, the leftist agenda gets advanced more under the GOP in power than under the left. Because the GOP does opposition reasonably well when it actually is in the minority. Yeah. But it's this, and, and you know, I, I was speaking to somebody about this the other day. I think Reagan's 11th commandment was one of the worst things that could have possibly ever happened to the Republicans. This idea that you should never criticize another Republican. Oh, yeah. I mean, come on. What, what are you talking about? All that does is allows leftists to infiltrate with an R next to their name and do whatever they want. Of course. And whatever happened to holding people to standards? I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's that's a, it's terrible. Yeah. yeah. But I, I think 
And I think there's mixed reasons that this happens. Again, I think from what I have seen and experienced, the overwhelming reason is social stigmatization and morally feeling made being made to feel like you're doing something wrong when you're taking the traditionalist approach. And it's it's because of these active measures. Now, I mean, I'm on the education committee. Yeah. There is almost not a day goes by that I don't walk in, and I'm in there a lot, that I don't walk in where there isn't leftist protesters and agitators holding signs wow. about whatever the issue of the day is. Mm-hmm. You know how often I see right wingers out there? I don't think I've ever seen ever. Mm-hmm. Wow. They the left fills our committee, they testify, they submit all of their stuff. They flood us with emails and calls. Right. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I was just going to ask how how organized do you think it is and how much uh, of it is like paid agit prop? I I suspect it is. Yeah, that's kind of my... I suspect it is mostly. I suspect it mostly is that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that would be my inclination as well. What what do you think the right can do? I know you said you've outlined some of it. How, How successful... How like, do you think there is much hope that they will succeed? Um, and if they do, what, what does that look like for our future? So that's what I'm trying to figure out. Yeah. Uh, the biggest reason I ran was to be sort of a proof of concept that right. I could I could come in, get elected, take this fight from the sort of using the populist base mm-hmm. and traditionalist ideals right. to attack those players on the right that are causing us to be the defeat mechanism. Mm -hmm. And that is what I'm working toward. And I don't know yet how successful I will be. I've had some successes. Right. Um, I also have a lot of pushback and I'm probably going to be, I would imagine I'll be primaried. Um, I've certainly um, had my run-ins with the, you know, speaker, my committee chairman and others. Um, but I mean, I, I can't be expected to sit back and just take it when they're bringing LinkedIn into the official, you know, high school curriculum in right. order to bring high school kids on the third party terms of service that subject them to hate speech rules in the classroom. Um, so they can be uh, it's a workaround of the Constitution. That's all it is. They can indoctrinate them and they can't say anything about it because. Now they're subject to third-party terms of service, not just the Constitution and the school's rules. Unbelievable. That's just one of many things I've dealt with that I mm-hmm. I tried to get that I tried to kill that bill, but I couldn't mm-hmm. do it. Wow! If you uh, if the, you could only get one thing accomplished uh, in your term, what what would that be? What would be the just one? If you could just if, get one, <laughs> I, I hope if I could just get one, much more. But yeah. If, you if could, I could have just got one, it would have been the Marxism religion bill, because that would have been something of a silver bullet to open the floodgates to lawsuits. I think um, so, too. I've got a lot of other stuff, though, just to just to list off the top of my. Yeah. My. Um, let me pull up my uh, folder here. So I put in four bills last mm-hmm. session. Mm-hmm. None of them passed. Um, one of them is being kept alive in interim study. Um, so last session, I put in a bill to prohibit central bank digital currencies in the oh, state. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I, I hope well, every state it, it does that. didn't pass, but it's no. it's alive for the next session. Good. We'll see what happens. I put in a bill to uh, 
prohibit uh, medical discrimination along the lines of Lysenkoism. So all of this um, uh, new, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion in medicine that is hurting and going to kill probably millions of people. Yes. Uh, that bill did not pass. Um, my Marxism is a religion bill did not pass. And I put in a sort of clever little attack on social emotional learning that didn't pass. This time, I'm being a little more forward. Okay. This time, I have put in my explicit anti-communist education act, um, which is a whole curriculum prescription for getting kids to learn about the true history of communism. Good. I'm trying esoteric, to... Yeah, esoteric metaphysics um, and their and basically how they need to combat it. Um, Great. I'm trying to I have oh, yeah. too. Yeah, that's Good. important. I've got um I've got an act, it's just a resolution actually, mm-hmm. that affirms the that the New Hampshire militia is still the proper and true defense of the state. It's a little bit of a different bill, but the idea is that the the the, the regime is trying to criminalize militia activity. Yeah. And this is a, something that could become a real problem where they just start they could arrest gun owners. Mm-hmm. They could um, use it to shut down the actual state national guard if it becomes yeah. a problem for them. Right. So I want to. I want to do that. Um, let's see. Uh, so my, my governor, uh, mm-hmm. um had an anti-ESG investing um, executive order okay. a few months back. I took a good hard look at it, and the way that the uh, order was um, worded, uh, did nothing. It only prohibited ESG if it was the sole source or the sole um, reason for investing. That's never the sole reason for investing. Of course. There's always other reasons for investing. There's a lot it's of this very clever language. So I took his, took his executive order and reworded it mm-hmm. to prohibit all ESG investing and criminalize it along the lines of fraud. Good. Um, I have submitted a bill to overhaul the New Hampshire sheriffs and how they work. For whatever reason, um, things over time changed in New Hampshire. And the way that it exists now is sheriffs primarily do jail functions, whereas primarily policing functions are done by local police departments. And typically, local police departments are led by the chief of police who is appointed, not elected. So I want to shift a little bit more power and authority over to the sheriffs. And more than anything, part of this bill requires the sheriff to be present, not participating in, but present at any federal law enforcement actions in the county in order to protect the rights of the New Hampshire citizen. Yeah, that's great. Um. And lastly, is a it's a bit of a fun one. Um, a study committee on student loans to look at how responsible colleges and universities are for the student loan issue that we're dealing with, for the indoctrination crisis that we're dealing with, and whether they might have any financial culpability for that. Those are great. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, those are awesome. Oh, there, there was one more. This is actually, I can't believe I forgot this. This is my most important bill. Oh. Uh, it's an education bill. So, okay. and I've heard, I've, I think you, I've heard you speak about this before. This idea that um, through the current sort of process of instituting curriculum, 
and then justifying further use of the same terrible curriculum like SEL and things like that. Mm -hmm. They call everything evidence-based. And all they do is they'll they'll use like surveys, basically, mm-hmm. to gather the data in order to justify the evidence that they base it on. Well, I've got a bill that would, first of all, require all pedagogy in the state of New Hampshire, so the methods by which education is delivered, to be evidence-based. And then I go on to define evidence-based <laughs> to require um, false falsifiability, um, multiple confirmations through well-designed, multiple well-designed studies, mm-hmm. and totally eliminating subjective data sets. Awesome. Yeah, I, I have talked about this uh, in the context of uh, Tavistock. You know, they used to call it uh, opinion making is what they call polling. Uh, they yeah. were much more honest and transparent about that uh, <laughs> in, in those days. Now now they, they call it evidence. <laughs> it's not evidence when it's a, a selected sample um, and you're using it to manufacture consent. That yes. is not evidence, <laughs> you know. Absolutely. So that that would actually be counter to evidence, I, in my opinion. But you would think so, but yeah, and I know, I know. That's that's not where we're at. Yeah. Well, those are really great. Uh, it's interesting on the ESG because they always couch it in these very deceptive kind of language, um, and I. I, I'm actually uh, I'm going to be doing a episode on. Uh, are, are you familiar with ARC, the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship, that uh, Jordan Peterson? Uh, uh, ARC Forum, yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah, and they there was a, a conference they did on ESG, and uh, mm-hmm. you know it sounds like they're they're fighting against it, but really they're saying that ESG is not working so well, so we're just going to go straight to the 17 Sustainable Goals. Um, <laughs> Yeah, like okay. Well, that that's not quite what uh I I actually went to this conference and it was a very like corporate kind of uh you know thought leaders quote unquote type of uh but in the corporate sector and yeah. it was really interesting. I I my re- my reaction sitting there was wow, like corporate America is single-handedly building the new world order. Um and like completely ignorant of and unaware that they're doing so they're they're basically like how do we make more money and let's go party uh that's kind of was the main sentiment that i i saw um but the one silver lining was that uh one of them was talking about how dei was not going over very well and people were not really uh very accepting of it and they weren't really uh supportive and so that was a their mission was to figure out how to really get people to rally behind uh, DEI um, and how could they rebrand yeah. it so that it would be more palatable to people because it was so important. And Oh, yeah. Got to get those words that work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I was like, okay, well, that's a silver lining. It's uh, people are not buying it, at least uh, at least not yeah. now. But the, don't worry, they're not going to give up the rebranding. So no. they'll, they'll find those buzzwords that are palatable and uh, enticing. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think those are all awesome, and uh, I I hope that uh, I hope that you do have success with them, and uh, I, I hope other states uh, take too. take lead because you know they they, they follow. Um, because I am very disenchanted with our federal apparatus, to be quite honest. But I think that there's yeah. hope in the state. Honestly, my, it's my opinion that the federal government at this point cannot be reformed from within. 
I think the best that we can hope for is to send people who will throw sand at the gears um, and buy the states more time. And ultimately, what the states need to do is we need to adopt a far more confrontational approach. We need to normalize the idea of nullification and inter- interposition on behalf of our citizens. We so. need to stand in that gap for them. We need to make alliances outside of federalism with other like-minded states to spread the federal government too thin to be able to beat us. And then we can have a negotiation on real terms about how this moves forward, whether that's some kind of a radical federalist structure or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I, I very much think that there it's it's kind of come at a very critical point. And yeah. it, the corruption has gone so far. Yeah, where it's it's going to be very difficult to reform from within. But the states yes. do have power, and I think the states we do take the, that power if we can convince ourselves that we have power and get those active measures operators out of the way then or or counter them or counter them successfully yeah Yeah. i I think that that that's valid right that there's a so so bringing awareness to the active measure sometimes is enough to uh dispel any uh success it's harder to do when the active measures are coming from people who have authority over you yes yeah but Those I think some, the, sometimes yeah. just just bring just putting a spotlight on the active measure can be enough. Yes. To, oh, absolutely. Yeah, because yeah. I, I think we've seen that actually. You know. Oh so, yeah, the desynchronization of it. Yeah. You mess up their their timetable. You mess up their flow because these things need a combination of they need mass and they need momentum. Yep. Right. Exactly. And if you can throw them off. You can break them down. And the same is true for us and what we need. And we need to be able to counter their measure, their active measures against us. Right. Developing mass and momentum. Yeah. So absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I'm uh, I'm so grateful you. that you're doing what you're doing. You're taking this on. And uh yeah, I really fully support what you're doing. And uh, those bills sound great. I, I hope you continue to to push for them and I hope they're they're success. Absolutely. So if you have anything else you want to impart, please do and tell everybody where they can find you and support you and all of that. Well, sure. Um, well, I hope I, I hope that was actually it because that's a small white pill to end on. Which is nice. <laughs> um, you can find me for, for whatever reason you wanted to find me on Twitter or X now at um, uh, Mike Belcher fourteen. Um, my I write at a path through. I haven't written as much recently, but I still write um, at a path through on Substack. Um, and I will probably be running again. Uh, so I'll have that announcement in the coming months. And Great. I would love support when the time comes, because I will be up against not just the, the Democrats this time, but the leadership of my own party will probably be coming from my head. Yeah. Yeah. Well, definitely. We, I, you have my support if I can help. Appreciate and uh, hopefully my audience will, will rally as well. So, yeah, Appreciate keep fighting that. the good fight. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, you too. And thank you all for watching and listening.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.